All right. Anybody know what time it is now? Time for the kids to come on up front. Come on up and have a seat. All right. Come on up. Find somewhere to sit. All right. Good. Keep coming, guys. Come on up. Find a spot. Okay. Now, to start out this morning, I need somebody who's really strong to volunteer. Who here is really strong? Vince, are you really strong? All right, come on up here. Okay, I want you to separate those two boards. Go ahead, just tear them apart. Rip them apart, separate them from one from the other. You're not getting it? All right, you keep working on it while I talk, okay? See if you can get them apart, all right? Now, Today, you guys have to listen, okay? He's going to keep working on that, all right? Listen. Okay, so today in the next couple of weeks, as Pastor Jeremy said, we're going to be talking about the gospel, right? Now, we often talk about the gospel, don't we? We talk about the gospel very often, but there's a, a couple, ser- a little sermon series on it in a special way, okay? Now, who knows what the word gospel means? What does it mean? Say it out loud. What is the word the word the gospel mean? Jesus, Bible, what does gospel mean? Anybody know? David got it. It means good news. That's right. Good news, right? Now, before we get to good news, there's some book of Romans news that we need to know. That's too bad, isn't it? There's bad news. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, and verse 23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Raise your hand if you're part of all. That's everyone, isn't it? We're all part of all. All have sinned. We've all sinned against God who is holy and perfectly righteous. Then in Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages or the, the payment for sin is what? The wages of sin is death. Yeah, death. Because of our sin, we all deserve death. We all deserve to be separated from God and from his blessing. We deserve to be under God's wrath or under God's punishment for our sin forever and ever. That's what we deserve. He's still working on it. That's what we, that's what we deserve. We deserve punishment forever. That's bad news, isn't it? That's bad news. And do you know what else? There is nothing we can do about it. Nothing. Nothing we can do about that sin in our lives, that, that, that deserving of eternal punishment. We can't change that. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves from God's wrath, from his punishment for our sin. That's really, really bad news, isn't it? Is anybody listening to me? <laughs> That's bad news, I'm telling you. Come on. That's bad news. We have sin. Okay, so we desperately need some good news, don't we? We need good news to counteract that bad news. The good news is that there's one who can save us, right? Who can save us from sin. Who is that who can save us from sin? Jesus Christ, that's right. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin, 
and he was raised to life again. This was God's plan from the beginning in order to save us, right? And God has shown mercy to us in that and saving us in that way so that he might be glorified, so that his glories might be made known. So think with me a second. If God has given his son Jesus to save us, for end, if for us will ever run out, do you think his love for us will ever end if he did all that to save us? No. Will we ever be separated from God's love? No, his love is eternal. It's everlasting. It doesn't end. All right, Vince, how's it going over there? Not very good. All right. So, just like Vince wasn't able to separate these boards one from another, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says in Romans 8.39 that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. So just like Vince couldn't separate these boards, nothing, nothing will ever be able to separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. When we respond to the gospel in faith, we are forever saved from sin, from God's wrath for sin, and we are forever bound, connected with God's love in Christ Jesus. That's really good news, isn't it? Yeah, good. I know you're strong. You can try after church, all right? All right, thanks, guys. You can go back and have a seat. That could be uh, what hell is like, trying to separate something eternally that can never be separated. Huh? All right, uh, I got a note passed to me. Ryan Holly is heading off to boot camp. This is his last Sunday. Sorry to embarrass you, Ryan, yeah. We have others serving in the military, yeah. So thanks, and let's keep in prayer for him and others. We are in Romans chapter 8. Verses 31 to 9, 29. Romans 8, 31 to 9, 29. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read all of that. I'll read a section of it, but that's, we're going to hit on some of that. So as I said, we've been in 1 Corinthians for a number of weeks. We did the first four chapters, and now we're going to uh, take a pause on that. As you know, Paul wrote the letter to the church in Corinth that was a mess. They were a mess, and so Paul speaks with a certain fatherly, hard, rebuking tone because of their sin. That, is, that, that was loving of Paul to do. That, that's right. Paul hopes for their repentance and reconciliation. Um, and I'm preaching that, as I said last week, so that we might learn how to do that. It's something we need. That tone, I am aware, however, that if you had a father that only speaks with that tone, it can be very discouraging and disheartening. If you, all you hear is rebuke and a, and a sharp edge, it's, it can be discouraging. And so I want to pause from the truth of the gospel of our need for rebuke and focus for a couple of weeks on the truth of the gospel of just hearing the objective truth of what God has done for us in Christ. So the last several weeks have been a lot of, if I could say, the imperative voice, the do this. And now in the next couple of weeks, we're going to just take the indicative voice and this is what has been done. Uh, we're going to just, uh, like I hope, a steak kind of getting prepared for July 4th and marinate in the goodness of God in the gospel and take joy in Him. All right, so I'm going to read just a section of chapter 9. Um, I'm going to start at verse 10 and go uh, through uh, verse 23. 
Where did I say I was going to start? Ten, okay. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, that they were not yet born and did nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you do bountifully with us that we might live and keep your word. Open our eyes, O God, that we might behold the wondrous things out of your law. In Christ's name, amen. So this sermon in the next several weeks, really throughout the rest of summer, are going to be more topical than exegetical. Now, by topical and exegetical, I don't mean we're not going to be preaching God's word. I just mean we're going to be te- preaching God's word differently. Instead of going through it line by line through an entire book, we're going to take a topic In God's Word in chapter 9, specifically this Sunday, God's sovereignty, and preach about it. Now, the first thing to notice about these verses is that they are all about the gospel. If you jump back up into chapter 8, verse 32, we read that he who did not spare his own son, but gave gave him up for us all. That is the heart of the gospel. Christ died for us. God didn't spare him, but gave him up. He was substituted for us. Right? So there's the gospel. Uh, Christ died for us. In, in 8.33, because of this, God has justified us. It is God who justifies. That is, we are given, credited, Christ's perfect righteousness, even though we are sinners. There's the gospel. And the implication of this is in 8.34 to 39, that because Christ died and rose and ascended, nothing, as Pastor Jeff showed, can separate us from the love of God. So, so we see in chapter 8, the gospel. And Paul continues that in chapter 9. He begins chapter 9 by expressing great sorrow because those who are ethnic Jews are not coming to Christ, but rejecting Christ. Paul has great sorrow over this, such sorrow that he would be willing to be cut off from Christ if it meant that ethnic Jews would come to Christ. But then he this, this creates a problem. Has, God wor- has God's world, word failed? And how, how would he think about this? If those who were once given all of God's promises, uh, God's word are now rejecting the pinnacle of the promise, has God's word failed? And Paul's answer is, not at all. Not at all. 
in the gospel, it was always going to be about Christ. He is still preaching the gospel in chapter 9. He's answering this question. How do we think about this relationship between Jews and Gentiles? And in verse 8, we read that he is still preaching about children of God. In verse 13, he's still preaching about the love of God to his children. In verse 16, we still see that he's preaching about the mercy of God. And in verses 23 and 25 and 26, we're seeing he's preaching about those who are being prepared for eternal glory, about his sons and daughters, about his beloved. So chapter 9 is still preaching the gospel. It's still all about the gospel. But it focuses particularly on the sovereignty of God and the gospel. He's answering the question is, how does someone become a child of God? How does one who has been separated from God by sin, especially Gentiles, become a beloved child of God? And in Paul's answer in chapter 9 is to focus on what I'm calling the godness of God. That God is God. He is to get all the glory because he has done all of the work in saving us. So what I want to do before we go further into looking at this, the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, the godness of God, I just want to make very clear what the gospel is. I want to make very clear what the gospel is. I've already pointed to it, but I want to point it out again. Go back up to 832. That, that first half of that verse is the heart of the gospel. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. The he there is God the Father. What he did is he did not spare his own son. So we'll see in a moment that I'm going to structure this sermon around the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Father did not withhold his eternal Son of God. He didn't spare him, but he gave him up. Now gave him up there is a simple description of the cross. Hidden within this verse is the fact that you and I were separated from God, that we were created by Him, by our sin. When I say by our sin, I don't mainly mean that you commit sin. I mainly mean that you're born in sin. Because our forefather who represents us, Adam, sinned. We are all born like Adam with the nature of sin. Now you've heard that many times, right? You've heard that? Do you know what that does to you? How it corrupts you? Just, what did you think about this morning? Did you think about coming and preparing to worship the eternal, holy, glorious God? Was He even in your consciousness at all? That's what sin does. It keeps you from thinking on the greatest reality that's constantly before you and being sidetracked with all these things. How did you treat each other this morning? Sin twists you. And because of that, we are under wrath. We deserve eternal punishment. But God spared us the punishment, but He didn't spare His Son. He gave up His Son for us all. The all there doesn't mean everyone everywhere. The all particularly refers to God's elect, to those that he's chosen. He gave up his son for his people. That is the context here. And that's the gospel. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, 
to die in our place for our sin. That is the gospel. Right? Now, the thing that makes the gospel effective and sufficient is who did it. It's Christ. We have people in our congregation who serve in the military. They're willing to give themselves on our behalf. We have firefighters who are willing to do this. They have dads and moms who would give their lives for each other, for, for their own children, I mean. But that sacrifice of another human for a human does nothing for us eternally. Only Christ can save us eternally before God because he alone is God and man. And so Christ's work as God is sufficient to get us to God and Christ's work as a man is sufficient to take your place as a man or a woman. And so that's the gospel. God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Now, you know that happened 2,000 years ago. It's completed. It's finished. It's done. And that is why you and I have eternal salvation. A salvation that is effective from beginning to end. A salvation that, as you continue on in chapter 8, can ne- nothing in heaven or earth can separate you from because God has done it in His Son. And I just want you to believe that. That's it. I, I want you to marinate in it, immerse yourself in it, enjoy it. To, to think that there's nothing greater in the world than this news for you right now. Nothing matters more than what this matters. That the God in the heavens so loved us that he didn't spare his own son, but graciously gave him us. And the way that you end up believing it is the second half. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's kind of a test. Believing the gospel of what Christ did for us means that in daily life, you don't see God as somebody who likes to withhold things from you. You don't conceive of God as a miserly, cranky father in heaven who likes to put carrots in front of you but never actually let you get them. That if God gave you his son, he's willing to give you everything. That's how you know how your heart is embracing the gospel on a daily basis. And I I just want you to believe this. If you believe that God gave you his only son, what does that tell you about God? Won't he give you everything else? That's necessary and needed? Does he really give you everything necessary for life and godliness or not? That's the gospel. So this is the glorious gospel of your and my salvation. And in this gospel, God is revealed to us. That is, we all want to know God as believers. Even unbelievers are driven internally with the desire for the eternal, to know something of God, but they try to go about their own means. That's what Paul is indicting the Jews for. Rather than going about knowing God by his revelation, they think they can do it on their own, especially by their own works. We want to know God, and the fullest and highest revelation of God is in what Christ has done. So what I want to do over the next three weeks is look at how or who God is Revealed to us in the gospel. This week I want to look at the godness of God, the greatness of God, the awe of God, the sovereignty of God, the control of God in this gospel. Next week I want to look at the goodness of God, the nearness of God, 
the kindness of God. And then in the last week, I just want to look at joy in this God, enjoying this God. And today, as we look at the godness of God, as I said, I want to structure it on the Trinity. I want to look at the Father who planned our salvation, the Son who accomplished it, and the Spirit who then comes and personally applies it to God's children. All right, so I want to look at how God, God is, how great God is, how sovereign God is, and that He has planned your salvation. He has accomplished it in Christ, and He even personally comes to you and applies it so you might look at God and say, wow, He's done it all. He has done it all. So let's begin with, in chapter 9, the godness of God by looking at God's plan, God's eternal plan of the salvation. Let me ask you a question. Thinking about creation, Romans 9 is filled with creation language. When God created this world, was redemption, was, was his plan of salvation already complete? Or did God create the world, set about running it, only be confronted with rebellion and sin, and then set about, what do I do now, trying to create this plan to redeem us from our sin? Did God create this world with salvation through faith in the death and resurrection of Christ as the main part of creation? Or did God create this world, pronounce it very good, only to realize that things went south in a hurry and now had to figure out plan B? In Romans 9, we see the godness of God in that this world is exactly as he wanted it. One of the philosophers in the earliest 20th century came up with this idea that this world is as good as it could be. That if God created it, it is exactly as he wanted it. In Romans 9, we have this creation language. Look at verse 17. We have this issue of Pharaoh. Was Pharaoh always a part of this great plan of salvation. Why Pharaoh? What was God's purpose in creating and raising up Pharaoh? Well, that who God is, especially the godness of God, the greatness of God, the power of God might be proclaimed in all the earth. In verses 20 to 23, again, we have creation language. This is answering this objection that Paul anticipates, that if God is that much God, if he is that much in control, then why blame us for anything? Paul's answer is, who are we to talk back to God? We have no right to question God, right? Because God is the creator. He is like a potter. He makes what he wants out of what he wants for what he wants, And if God, desiring to show his wrath, he's created vessels of wrath in order to create vessels of mercy. So another way to simply say this is when we think of the gospel, when we think of God sending his son to die for us, this is the outworkings of his eternal plan. God planned it. The Father has ordained it. Creation then 
is, can be conceived of as a theater where we all get to draw up front seat rows to see how great God is. Creation is set as a stage where God works out his plan of redemption. And everything that has taken place from the beginning till now, all the way through to the end, is as God wants it, planned it, willed it. And so what is God's salvation, though? Now, some people take that as a hard teaching. They don't like it. But look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. This plan is one of mercy. He has mercy. It depends not on our will or our exertion, but on God, who has mercy. One of the things you should see in this greatness of God, in the sovereignty of God, is how merciful he is. How many of you deserve any salvation. What do you deserve? And God has mercy. God has mercy. So God the Father has ordained a plan of salvation and God the Son came and accomplished it. God planned it, created a world in order to carry out this plan. And how was it accomplished? Oh, as I said in verses 15 and 16, we read of this mercy and compassion of God. What is this mercy and compassion of God? What form did God's mercy and compassion take? When he says, I will have mercy in whom I have mercy, I have compassion in whom I have compassion, what is the mercy? What is the compassion? Well, of course, the mercy and compassion is the person of Jesus Christ. So God not only had planned it, God sent his son and God himself accomplished it. I, don't, I enjoy reading novels. I try to consistently read through historical, really good novels. I just finished Dracula. Wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. One of the unique things about God is the author of everything is that God not only authored it, but he authored it as himself coming and doing all of the hard work of redemption. He has inserted himself in this redemption world through his son who came and saved us. Now, one of the things you'll see in Romans 9 is you have these contrasts. You can begin in chapter or verse 13. You have this contrast between Jacob and Esau. Or in 15 and 16 and 17 between Moses and Pharaoh. Or you have these objects of mercy and these objects of wrath. One of the things not to do with that is to think of Jacob, good guy, Esau, bad guy. Moses, good guy, hero, Pharaoh, bad guy. Right? Objects of mercy, good guys, deserving guys. Objects of wrath, bad guys. Right? Everybody in this chapter is bad. <laughs> Nobody's good. Nobody's even better than the other. God didn't love Jacob because Jacob was such a good, compliant child and Esau is such a difficult child. No, it's just God's mercy. Everybody in Romans 9 is bad. Abraham sinned. Jacob and Esau sinned. Moses and Pharaoh sinned. Vessels of mercy, vessels of wrath, all born in sin, rebelling against God. So Romans 9 isn't a good versus bad. Romans 9 is simply saying, everybody here needs a Savior, and there's only one good guy, 
who came by God's mercy to accomplish our salvation. So everybody in Romans 9 is disobedient. There's only one obedient one. You know, I've said it and I'll say it over and over again. You are saved by obedience. It's just not yours. You're not saved by Jacob's obedience. You're not saved by Abraham's obedience. You're not saved by Moses' obedience. You're not saved by your obedience. One of the reasons the ethnic Jews are indicted in the book of Romans is that they went about trying to get saved by their own acts of obedience. Instead, they should have turned to Christ, who is the only obedient son, who is the obedient descendant of Jacob, who is the far greater Moses, who is the only one who came and always obeyed the Father. Jesus Christ has done what no one else would or could. He obeyed the Father. In Philippians 2, we read that Christ Jesus became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. So what he's saying there is Jesus, throughout his entire life, when he was on earth, he, he, he was tested as a child. Would he obey when his dad asked him to, I don't know, mow the grass? Would he obey when his siblings stole a toy? Would he obey when he was employed and the boss told him to do something? Would he obey on the street when a pretty woman walked by? Would he obey even when the father called his son to take our sin and go to the cross? And all throughout, Christ obeyed. I wanted to draw out the truth of Christ's obedience as this great accomplishment of the gospel first, because we don't often consider it. We talk about Christ dying in our place. We talk about his resurrection. We talk about his ascension where he makes intercession for us. We don't often talk about Christ's active obedience while on earth. It shows how great he is, doesn't it? You know how hard it is to fight temptation. We read in the Bible that Jesus Christ was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he never sinned. He was tempted in every way as you are, and he never lied, he never lusted, he never gossiped, he never yelled in anger, he never grumbled about an illness, he never used money greedily, he never idolized what others thought of him, he never fornicated, none of it. He never yielded in thought, in intent, in desire, in word or in deed. Christ did it. Christ accomplished the required obedience before the Father. He did it. Which means, of course, you can't. He's done it. He's accomplished it. The Father doesn't require your obedience to be accepted because He has given you the record of Christ's obedience, and that is your acceptance. So God planned this, and God accomplished it. That is His mercy. That is his compassion. So we have the godness of God in the plan of salvation from before creation. And we have the godness of God in him accomplishing what we need so desperately. But how does it get applied to us individually? It's one thing for God the Father to plan this great salvation. It's another thing for God the Son to come and actually accomplish it objectively, in real time in history. 
But how does it actually come to us personally? How do we ever realize our sinfulness, our ongoing rebellion, our need for a radical internal transformation, our need for... How does that happen? Well, this is what the Holy Spirit does. So God the Father planned our salvation. God the Son accomplished it in His obedience. And God the Spirit then comes to us and applies it. Romans 9 is, as you know, maybe, one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible. More heat has been generated by this chapter than any others. And I don't think it's because the language is that uh, unclear. I think it's because it's really clear. And it's very hard on our human pride. In verse 11, we have this issue of election, that God's purpose of election might continue. Some have an issue with that word. But it's a biblical word. It's not only here, it's used not infrequently in the Bible, and so we shouldn't avoid it. And it's actually a glorious word. It's a beautiful word. It's a word that shows how much God is God. That He decides whom He's going to give mercy to. And, and, and Paul unpacks or defines what this word election means with this example of Jacob and Esau. God loved Jacob and God hated Esau. What does that mean? He doesn't mean that Jacob he treated real nice because Jacob was a good guy and Esau he didn't feed or clothe or give breath and treated him real bad because Esau was a bad boy. What he means is before they were even born, as it said, God chose to enter into saving covenant with Jacob and his offspring and not with Esau. We, we see God's sovereignty here in salvation. We see God's sovereignty. God has mercy on whom he will. He has compassion on whom he will. He creates people to be vessels of mercy. So when we talk about how does this plan of God accomplishing some become personally applied to human lives, individuals, one biblical answer is God's choice. One biblical answer is God's choice. In fact, one of the central reasons Romans 9 has been written by Paul is verse 16. So then, here's the reason why he's written about Jacob and Esau. Here's the reason why he's written about election. So then, it depends not on human will, not on what you want or I want, not on human exertion, not on our works, not on our efforts. It depends on God. And what is this God like? He's a God who has mercy. In verse 24, Paul writes, even us whom he has called. That word called there refers to what the Holy Spirit does in applying this gospel, this work of Christ and obedience to us. The term called refers to the internal work 
of God's elect when the Spirit comes and makes us alive, the new birth. It's the same word used in chapter 8. If I can find it. Yeah, yeah, uh, 28. For we know that for those whom God loves, all things work together. For those whom are called according to the purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn. And those whom he predestined, he called. The calling here isn't the public preaching of the gospel. The calling here is the internal work of God's spirit, applying the work of Christ, convicting you of sin taking out your hard heart and implanting a spiritually alive heart so that you can repent and believe this gospel. So what I want you to do is sit back and enjoy the God of this gospel. He does it from beginning to end. He doesn't just plan it and then accomplish it and wait and sit back to see who wants it. He plans it, he accomplishes it, and then he personally comes to you and applies it by his mercy and grace through his spirit. He does the work. I'll show you how much God God is. Show you how great He is. He doesn't stop short. He doesn't stop short. Why won't you ever be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Is it because you have faith that's so strong that you'll never let go? Don't you know yourself better than that? Some great sorrow or tragedy came into your life. Do you really have the strength to not let go of God in of yourself? Isn't that truth at the end of Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus Lord, based solely in the fact that salvation is a work of God from beginning to end? Because God is God and He has mercifully saved you? Now this doesn't at all remove responsibility. Romans 9 squarely puts responsibility on humans. Pharaoh is to blame for his hardness. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was once asked in a sermon something like this, how he reconciles the truth of God's sovereignty, God's godness, God's control, and human responsibility. Spurgeon didn't miss a beat. He said, I don't reconcile friends. These two things are not incompatible. They're compatible. You must repent and believe the gospel or you will not be saved. That is absolutely true. But if you are repenting and believing the gospel, it's because God's spirit is at work in you. You would not do it otherwise. Let me just ask you, how did you come to be convicted of sin? Who did that for you? Who opened your eyes to your wickedness and need of the gospel? Wasn't it God by His Spirit? Who makes you alive together with Christ? Isn't it God by His Spirit? Who seals you for the day of redemption? Isn't it God by His Spirit? Another way to say this is God actually saves us. He saves us all the way. Do you celebrate heroes who save people three quarters of the way and then they don't make it all the way? 
God actually saves you from beginning to end. And so you can trust him. Let's end with with Psalm 121. Turn there if you would. I read this this morning in the voice. This would be a great conclusion. Well, I don't know if it, I think it is. You can judge when I say that. That was a bad ending, but I think this is good. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Right? So here he's in need of help. You, you'll, be in, you, you'll need this verse Monday. You will have trouble, have sorrow, have a bad diagnosis, have an accident, somebody in your life, whatever. I need help. Where does it come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Be healed. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Don't misunderstand this text. This doesn't mean we will never have trouble or sorrow. This means that trouble and sorrow will never, will never remove you from God uh, forevermore. Why can you believe this? Why can you actually take this home with you? Because God has saved you from beginning to end. Because God is a God who planned your salvation. God is the God who accomplished it through the obedience and death and resurrection and reign of his son. And God is the one who comes to you individually, personally, and makes you alive together with Christ by his spirit. And so Psalm 121 can be believed by you tomorrow. You can trust Psalm 121 because the God of Psalm 121 is God. He is great. He is sovereign. And so you can believe it and pray it. Let's pray. Father, you are our God, and you alone are God. Would you help us to go from here comforted, secure, enjoying the reality that you who has begun this work will complete it because you have planned it, you have accomplished it, and you have and are and will apply it. And so, God, may we leave here setting you apart as Lord, as the only God, because you are great. In Christ's name, amen.